right, all right. Well, we are continuing our series, Storytellers, uh, which we've been in now for four weeks. This is week number four. Uh, week number one, Pastor Mike preached a message on the Valley of Dry Bones. And then week number two, I preached about Paul and Silas in prison. And then last week, as I've already mentioned, uh, Pastor Stephan preached on Joseph and the life of Joseph. And uh, this week it is Father's Day. So I know I've already said it, but I'm going to say it again. Happy Father's Day to all my dads that are here today. And we have got a special, special gift for you. Um, I told you we got some new swag. I guess they call cup swag. I don't know if swag is just what you wear or if it's just merch or whatever we call it these days. But this is a classic stadium cup in the 22-ounce form. And so you can enjoy um, something in this. Okay, but you will enjoy this first, which is some uh, chocolates, uh, some uh, Reese's miniatures, and some Hershey Kisses. Uh, Dad, you can thank me later because now you have something to give your kids on the way to lunch when they're crying, Dad, I'm hungry, I'm hungry, I'm hungry. And so, you know, hey, I'm thinking about you, all right? And so uh, there will be um, a table outside in the foyer with these. Grab one on the way out. But isn't this an awesome cup? It's got our logo on it got our, our, our vision and mission and process statement here, uh, passion, people, purpose. And so all of the men can walk away with one of these today. I don't care if you're dad or not. If you're a man here in the house today, take one, enjoy it. And uh, yes. And so, um, yeah, so that's that. Awesome. Okay. All right. So I thought I would t uh, start out by telling some dad jokes, uh, you know, because they're awesome and we as dads just have the nice privilege of telling dad jokes. And so it's okay if you um, steal these today, okay, and uh, use these at your own leisure. Uh, but I came up with 10 that I really liked and thought that they were really good. And so we'll just go for it and see what you think. All right, here we go. Number one, where did you learn to make ice cream? Sunday school. I should have Josiah in here going, T -t 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 -t. but um, all right. Okay, here's another one. Did you hear about the cheese factory that exploded in France? There was nothing left but debris. Now, I wouldn't buy anything with Velcro because it's just a total ripoff. What did the grape do when he got stepped on? He let out a little wine. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Our wedding was so beautiful, even the cake was in tears. <laughs> Why couldn't the bicycle stand up by itself? It was too tired. What do you call a pony with a sore throat? A little horse. See, I can tell some of you have already researched these out, which I don't know if that's good or bad. Why did the coffee file a police report? Because it got mugged. Now, I'm saving the last two for best. Y'all got time for two more? <laughs> that tells me y'all are really liking this. If prisoners could take their own mug shots, they would call them selfies. 
Now, I told these just for Kelly Carter because I just love it when she laughs because it's so contagious. All right, here's, here, here's the last one and my all-time favorite in this list. But what does an annoying pepper do? It gives jalapeno face. Ha! <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Some of y'all are like, man, my life is complete now. It's great. I'd be shocked if I heard those at lunchtime at any of your tables today. But they're dad jokes. It's all good. So, anyways, back to what we're here for. We are continuing our series, Storytellers, by looking at another one of my favorite Bible passages, and it's the story of the prodigal son. It's the story of the prodigal son. Now, the reason that I love this story is because it shows us the Father's heart, and that's what I've titled this message today, is the Father's heart. The, 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 the story of the prodigal son is one of those stories that captures the heart of the father in one spot like if all you had to look at was this story i believe that you could grab a heart uh, or grab a hold of the heart of god in just this one story so i'm going to start it off in luke chapter 15 starting in verse 11 and it says this to illustrate the point further now we'll get back to that at the end today but to illustrate the point further there was a point that Jesus was trying to make, and like I said, we'll get back to that in just a minute. And Jesus told them this story, that a man had two sons. And the younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this younger son packed all of his belongings and moved to a distant land, and there he wasted all of his money on wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. And the young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him. But no one gave him anything. No one gave him anything anything. Now, there's just a couple of things to note in this opening uh, passage to the story of the prodigal son. The first one is this, is that the son asks for his inheritance while the father is still alive and healthy, which in this culture and in this day and time was basically telling his father, I wish that you were dead. Give me what is owed to me when you die now and let me go live my life. Now, what's really shocking about this story and would have been for the listeners to the story is that the father agreed. The father said, okay, here it is. He divided his wealth between his sons, so he didn't just do for the younger, he did for both. Now, what this shows us is the first peek into the father's heart. And that is this, is that our God has given each and every one of us a free will. Now think about this for a minute, because if we don't have free will, then we don't have the opportunity to experience love. Because if we're forced into 
a relationship with somebody, tell me that that's real love. It's not. So we see a peek into the Father's heart in this moment that says, you know what? They have free will. They can do what they want. And here they go. Let's let them have it. What the son was saying is not only that I wish you were dead, but he was also saying my way is better than your way. Now, a lot of us will disguise, like we don't want to say that our lives are like that. Nobody wants to say, I can do my life better than God. Okay, that just sounds, it just doesn't sound very good. So we've packaged it a different way, and now we call it self-discovery. So, so we get into this self-discovery mode and we're going to go discover ourselves because we want to discover who we really are. Not through the lens of how God made us, not through the lens of how God sees us, but who, do I, who am I? Like, let's go on this self-discovery journey and let me figure out who I am. So that's what this son did. He goes on this self-discovery uh, deal and... and he absolutely makes a mess of his life, right? It doesn't take Jesus very long to get to the point about what the younger son did. He goes and he squanders all the wealth. He's lost it all. He's gotten to this point to now where he's begging a farmer to let him take food to pigs, which you can get into research about how that's just, it's embarrassing that the son gets to that place because he's a Jewish man in this story. They didn't want anything to do with pigs. So there's a lot of, research into the commentary that you can do and you can find like what point this guy really got to to save us some time he got to the bottom he got to the bottom how many of you understand maybe for some you've been at the bottom before so you know what the bottom's like you know that the bottom produces desperation to the point that you'll do things that you would have normally have never done, but when you get to the bottom, you're going to do it because you want to get out. And that's where this son was. Now, we continue the story in verse 17. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, At home even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I will go to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. It says he finally came to his senses. What does that mean? What does it mean that he came to his senses? Now, if we're reading that just as a phrase that we would read in other books and and other things you have a certain idea of what that means but when we read scripture I think we have to read it through a different lens and we have to understand what was really happening in this moment that he came to his senses this is what I believe happened in this moment that there was an exchange that happened that this young son exchanged his pride for humility When he came to his senses, it was as if he was like, okay, I'm ready to make the exchange. I'm ready to lay the pride aside, and I'm willing to pick up the humility that I find myself in. Because here's the thing. Life has a way of humbling us at times. Now, 
let me just back that up statement real quick because we've heard that before, right? You've heard something similar to that. Well, I would beg for you to understand it as in God allows you to be humbled at times. Those that don't believe in Him yet and those that do believe in Him, He will allow you to get humbled at times. Trust me, it's happened multiple times in my life. Sometimes it's like, hey, McFly, have we learned our lesson yet or do we need to go through this again? So this son makes an exchange and he exchanged his pride for humility. Now I'm going to take some liberty here, but I think that I can make a good case for what I'm about to say. When we get to a place where we exchange our pride for humility, it's an invitation for God to speak. You see, we can't hear the Father's voice if we're clothed in pride. I don't care if you've believed in Jesus your entire life. If you've coated yourself in pride, you cannot hear the voice of the Lord. Because he can't look at pride. Pride is the root of all sin. He can't look at sin. He can't be a part of sin. When pride is on you, he cannot get through to you. You have to come to a place where you realize an exchange has to happen. Now, he might allow for a circumstance to happen to get that pride off of you to where you finally see it, like what happened to this young man. I don't think that he went into a pigsty thinking, man, maybe God will speak to me now. I think he went into the pigsty because God allowed him to get to that place. His father allowed him to make the decisions that he made. Remember, we started off with free will. He allowed him to get him to the place that he was at to where he would finally come to his senses. And in that moment, he makes that exchange. And when he exchanges that pride for humility, it was as if he was saying, God, please, please, please just speak to me. And I believe that that's where the verse comes in, where he said to himself, at home even hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. Like what I really believe he was hearing in his mind. Have you ever done this where you... You'll say one thing, but you're really thinking another thought on top of that. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? Like what comes out of your mouth is the thought that you have, but you still have a continuation of that thought in your head. You just don't process it in words. Am I making sense when I say that? Okay, just want to make sure. So what I believe is happening here is that he's beginning to hear the heart of his father. Just come home. Just come home. Just come home. And when he begins to hear this, he begins to reason within himself. And he says, well, if I go home, at least the hired servants have food on the table. So I believe he hears the voice of the Lord, but he's reasoning his current situation and what has happened. He's hearing come home, but he's hearing, okay, if I go home, this is probably what's going to happen to me. But that's better than where I'm at right now, so let me just come home. So, the story continues. So he returned home to his father. Verse 20. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. 
And filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, kissed him. And his son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. How many times do you think he rehearsed that along the way? Verse 22. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast for this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the party began. And there's a few things to note here before we really get into the meat of the message. It says this in verse 20. And while he was still a long way off, the father saw him. Can I just tell you this morning that the father sees you? You might not be able to see him because you're too far away, but he can see you. God sees you this morning. He knows exactly where you're at. He knows the situations you're in. He knows the relationships you're in. He knows your thoughts right now. He knows what you're struggling with. He knows your highs. He knows your lows. He knows everything about you because he sees you right now, regardless of where you are at in life. He sees you. It also goes on to say that he was filled with love and compassion. Filled with love and compassion. Can I say this? I heard this this past week that, you know, when Jesus got to the end of his time on this earth and he was looking at his disciples, you know what he told them? He said, all authority has been given to me. It doesn't say some authority. It says all authority. So now, this is what I heard. Sometimes, we make the devil out to be a lot bigger than what he is. And our God to be a lot smaller than what he is. You see, if all authority has been given to Jesus, then that means nobody else has that authority other than who he chooses to give it to. And what did he say? All authority has been given to me, and so now I'm going to impart it into those that believe in me, and now go into all the world. So the only ones that have authority is Jesus himself, God in heaven, the Holy Spirit, and believers. Guess who's not in that little line up there? The devil. So guess what? He has no authority, but yet we choose to act like he's got authority. You see, the only thing that the enemy has in his arsenal is deception. So all he wants to do is deceive you. You know, sometimes we're like, oh man, I mean, the devil's really got me going right now. Yeah, he's really got you going because he's deceived you. It's not because he's got authority over you. He's deceiving people. Can I tell you what one of his biggest deceptions is? Is what's happened in this story. Or what could happen in this story. It says that the father loved him and had compassion on him. You want to know where the devil deceives people? Is he deceives people into thinking God only has sympathy for him and not compassion. Because here's the thing. Sympathy gives attention to a person in need but can't deliver them. 
Compassion comes to set free. We have bought into the deception that God is only sympathetic towards us. Oh, he sees us all right. He gives us attention all right. He says, oh man, I'm sorry that you're in that place, but guess what? I can't do anything. And so we treat God that way. Can I tell you, that is a lie from the pit of hell. It doesn't say in this story that the father looked at him with love and sympathy. It says he looked at him with love and compassion. Guess what? Compassion comes to set free. I love in verse 22, because the son in verse 21 gives him this, this speech that he had prepared. But his father, it, it, it says, but his father said to his servants, quick, bring the finest robe. It's as if like he didn't even hear what the son just said. That's right. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. Doesn't the Bible say that when we come to him and we give our lives to him and we repent of our sins, that he forgets our sins as far as the east is from the west? You see, we're giving our past way too much opportunity in our lives to steal from our present and in our future. You see, the son came back. Yes, he came back, and that's great that he came back, but he came back with the attitude that we carry as the world that says, okay, I'm going to come back to God, but now I'm just going to be the little, the little whipping boy. All I'm going to do is just be a slave. Because he's going to continue to punish me for my sin that I've created in my past. That's not what happens. The writer of Hebrews says we can boldly enter into the throne room of God and there we will find grace. The thing about it is, is that when he saw the son, the dad didn't see his wealth squandered. He didn't see a person that looked like he was locked up in addiction. He didn't see a son who was defeated. You know what he saw? He didn't see a slave. He saw a son. He saw a son that was uh, uh, going to take his rightful place. He saw a son that still had a hope and still had a future. He saw a son that still had a dream. He saw a son that was victorious and not defeated. It says there are three things that the father gives to the son upon his return. And these three things give us tremendous insight into the father's heart. The first one is this, is the finest robe. He said, quick, hurry up, bring him the finest robe. You see the robe here symbolizes covering covering is what is at the heart of the robe and it's a robe of righteousness because when you come to Christ you immediately are clothed in his righteousness and the filthy rags of your own attempts at righteousness are no longer necessary What clothes are we putting on every day that we wake up? Are we putting on our own clothes that say, I can do it my way, my way's better? Are we putting on the clothes that say, oh, look at me, this is what I've had to endure in the self-pity robe? 
are we putting on the robe of righteousness, in the robe of confidence, in the robe of sonship, in the robe that identifies us not as who we are, but the Christ that lives inside of us? What are we wearing? Isaiah 61.10 says, I am overwhelmed with joy in the Lord my God, for He has dressed me with the clothing of salvation and draped me in a robe of righteousness. I am like a bridegroom dressed for his wedding or a bride with her jewels. Boy, this is... Let me just, let me just hang out here for a minute because some people need to hear this. Here's the problem. Here's the problem with the church today. You want to know what the problem is with the church today? We see people for how the world sees them, not how God sees them. And I'm not talking about worldly people. I'm talking about people that say they believe in Jesus. We got too much of a problem looking at people saying, you know what, Brett, I'm still going to choose to look at you how the world sees you. I'm not going to choose to look at you how God sees you. And you know what happens when we do that? We look at people with contempt. We look at people like, oh, they're not good enough. They don't have what it takes. Oh, man, look at that. They don't have anything. No, you know how I need to look at Brett? I need to look at Brett as the bride of Christ because that's who he is. When he came to give his heart to Jesus, guess what? Brett's clothes got thrown off and Jesus' clothes got put on. So now I don't see Brett. I see the Jesus that's on the inside of him. You know what? I don't see a, 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 a Brett who, who thinks that I'm not qualified. I see a Brett that is qualified. I don't see a Brett that thinks, man, where's my purpose? I see a dream inside of him. I see Christ inside of him I see a hope and I see a future in him what would our churches look like what would our world looks like if we if we would see people the way that God sees them instead of the way that the world sees them you know sometimes I think we're waiting way too long for people to get qualified for something I mean, who are we called to be a judge of what Christ has done inside of their life? Now, I'm called to come alongside of you and say, hey, look, this doesn't look necessarily right. We need to check that out. But I'm not here to put you below me. Because the last time I checked, we're seated at the right hand with Jesus. Nobody is below anybody. We're on an even playing field. Man, I'm preaching a lot better than the response I'm getting. You know what the robe speaks of? It speaks of four things. The first one is this. It speaks of love. Jesus desires to cover you with his love. That's why we have sayings in the church. You're covered in the blood. You want to know why? Because you're covered with the love of Christ. You're covered with everything that was inside of him. Everything that could possibly make him up is covering you as a believer in Christ. You know what else it, 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 it does? is mercy. The rose speaks of the Father's mercy. Think about this. The Father had every right to say, Son, you don't have a place in this house anymore. You already wished that I was dead. I already gave you a shot. I already gave you your inheritance. You squandered it. That's it. Out of here. Let me tell you, that's how my response would be. Can I just be honest? Now, you might be looking at me like, I don't know if I can attend church here anymore. 
How many times have you gotten to that place with your kids at some point? Are you like, just get out of here? At least somebody is agreeing with me. Good night. As John Bevere would say, I feel like I'm preaching to a bunch of Methodists right now. But that robe speaks of mercy. You know what mercy is? You not getting something you deserve. We deserve the punishment of the Father. We deserve the get out of my face from the Father. But that's not what He gives. He says, quit, just bring the robe. The third thing that the robe speaks of is grace. You see, mercy is getting something that we don't deserve or that we do deserve, right? Not getting what we do deserve is mercy. Grace, okay, what we've been taught is that it's unmerited favor, that it's getting something that we don't deserve, which is true. But sometimes we sell grace short a little bit because grace is not only there to just give us things, it's also there to empower us. So the robe speaks of the Father's grace. And then the last thing that the robe speaks of is the Father's favor. How many of you ever heard favor ain't fair? But here's the thing about God. He desires to extend favor to each and every one of his sons and daughters. So the first thing he gave him was the robe. The second thing he gives him is the ring. Now the ring is a sign of the full rights of sonship. It's the sign of covenant as well. Now, think about this. When we get married, right, we all get rings, most of us. Some people even get them tattooed on now, which that's like, that, that's that's... That's okay, okay. I don't even know why I just said that. But anyway, it's okay. I just have random thoughts that enter every now and then. I guarantee you that wasn't a God thought. But okay, anyhow, back to the ring. When we get married, we put rings on, right? And it's a sign of what? It's the sign of the covenant that we are making. We exchange rings. It's a sign to the covenant vows that we say to one another. Now here is the father expressing the restoration of his covenant to his son. That's what he's saying when he says, go get him a ring. Put the ring on his finger. It's a restoration of the covenant. This is about an unending promise of love expressed in generosity. You see, there's no thought of the squandered wealth or the inheritance that was lost. All thoughts are all entirely to the future. And the Father speaks of the destiny of the Son. You see, that's what covenant does. 
it always speaks to our destiny rather than our past. It looks forward rather than what is behind. You see, here's this son that should have gotten punished. And now he's getting the ring put on his finger. Because you see, when we come into the kingdom of God, God is like, okay, it's all about now and the future. My covenant with you is about your destiny. And your destiny is what's ahead of you, not what is behind you. The second thing that the ring represents is memorial. The ring on his hand is a constant memorial of the Father's generosity. So he would never forget it. Whenever he looks at the ring, which tends to be worn all the time, he can recall what the Father has done for him. There are times where I look at my wedding ring and I go back to that moment when Christina and I said our vows. And I look at it and I think about that day and I think about the way we looked at each other and I think about the words that we said with one another. Sometimes I have to look at that ring when it's not a good day in our marriage and be reminded that the vows that I made are continual for the future. We say things like, for richer, for poorer, for better, for worse, in sickness and in health. It's really nice that we can do marriage when we're wealthy or when we're healthy. When we're doing great, but what about those times when we're on the poorer side of things? When are those, when we're on the bad side of things? When we're on the sickness side of things? Then what? Then what? It's a great opportunity to go back and look at the memorial. The third thing that the ring represents is identity. In those times, there would have been a seal on the ring, and the seal would have been used to identify. So, Whenever they would uh, write something or send something, they would impress the seal of the ring into the wax. And it would signify the authority that was on that ring, which represented the identity of the person that wore the ring. Think about that. This young son would never be known as the one that would squander wealth and inheritance, but would always be known as a son of the house. And the fourth thing that the ring identifies is authority. The ring would have been a symbol of authority. It would have designated that the wearer as the one who carried the weight of the one who gave it to him. The father was now saying, son, you're not going to be a slave in this house. You are my son in this house. And the authority that I have is now your authority. That's what the ring represented. You see, one of the big ideas in the New Testament is the nature of spiritual authority that we have. Jesus teaches us to use that authority to speak to mountains, still the weather, heal the sick. Now, why do we have such authority? It's because when we are born, it's because we are born again into a royal line. And when we come to faith in Christ, we are of a different line. We have the nature of of eternal royalty running in us. 
You see, true authority is given to us, not grasped. And we have authority because we are sons and daughters. We are to never forget the bond of sonship or daughtership when exercising authority. You see, when Jesus operated, he operated in authority, but always moved out of his sonship, recognizing his father in all that he did. He said things like, I don't do things unless the Father tells me to do them. I don't say things unless the Father tells me to say them. Jesus was not this guy that just one ran rogue on the planet. No, he submitted himself to the sonship of the Father, and because of that, he had total and complete authority. Whew. This played out a lot different in my head. All right, the third thing is the sandals. The sandals. You see, the sandals are a sign of the journey. You see, the son received righteousness with the robe. He came into covenant with the ring. And now he must walk this relationship out with the sandals that have been given. And this is where many miss the mark. You see, you don't just become a son to do nothing. You, you, you don't become a daughter just to do nothing. No, you return home to do the work of a son that the Father gives. You see, God wants to make history through you but you got to make history with him first. You see, a lot of times I think that we have this misconception that as soon as we come into knowing who Christ is, that that means we just get to sit and relax until at some point we get some divine download or that we get an uh, epiphany or we get a vision or we get the skies opened up, it doesn't happen that way. We serve a God that most certainly wants to make history through you. I heard this this week. I posted it on Facebook. Guess what? Crowds don't make history. People make history. He's looking for people like you that has a dream on the inside, and he's waiting for you to say, here I am, like Isaiah, here I am, send me. I don't even know what I'm signing myself up for, but here I am. Send me. You see, we got to stop being so hungry for a certain position and be hungry for the Father. So many times we're looking for a certain thing before we'll step into something because that's what I'm gifted for. That's where my strengths are. That's what I'm supposed to do. I've already gotten a visit from, from the Lord in my head that this is what I'm supposed to do, but yet we don't want to do anything to get to that place. We're not willing to make history with Him first. He so wants to make history through you. Think about this. Ephesians 6.15, for the shoes. 
put on the peace that comes from the good news so that you will be fully prepared. How do we make history with God? You've got to get in His Word. You've you, you got to get into His Word. You've got to read it. And not just read it like a book. You've got to let it sink deep in. You've got to meditate on it. You see, that's the issue that we have right now in church. You've got two camps. You've got one that are so word-heavy and that they don't want any movement of the Spirit. And then you've got ones that want all the Spirit to move but no word. You can't have it like that. I read this quote this week. Revival, the next big move of God is going to be when the Word and the Spirit get together again. Now, I know some of you like version. okay? I, I'm going to go extremely practical right now. Uh, and some people, look, I just need on-ramps to get people into the Word of God, okay? Eventually, you need to study the Word of God, get into the Word of God, let a physical book look like it's been ragged. But sometimes you need an on-ramp to get to that place, okay? Let me give you an appetizer so that you can get to the main meal, there is an app called First 15. Okay, First 15. If you look that app up, it's a, it takes 15 minutes. The guy that writes it is, is awesome. Okay, I can't even tell you what the guy's name is right now, but he's awesome. And he writes this devotion. And what he does is, is right now he's in, he's in faith. So he's talking about what faith is. And he's every single day talking about a different aspect of faith. Here's what I like about it. You got a big idea on faith, so like Hebrews 11.1 1 is what he's using as the big idea for faith right now, okay? Then you go into the scripture for the day, which is the aspect of faith that he wants to build his devotion around. Then he gives you a worship video so that you can worship. Then you read the devotional, which is awesome, insight from God. Then he gives you a, a, a prayer outline where he tells you things to meditate on, things to pray for, then he gives you a go section on how to apply it. It is a great app. So you can download the app on your phone. You can get the email to you every day. I'm just putting the resource out there. That was not in my notes. I don't get paid for that endorsement. But I'm just saying, verse 15 is a great way to start getting hungry for the Word of God. And it teaches you how to have a, a proper devotional life. That it's not just, okay, let me open it up. Let me read a little paragraph and then let me move on my merry way. It sets time aside for you to worship, for you to pray, for you to read the Word, because all of those things go hand in hand. All right. Psalms 119, 105. Your Word is a lamp to guide my feet and a light for my path. That's what the shoes are. The shoes are the Word of God that prepares us for the journey that is ahead. To give us the the insight that we need to give us the encouragement that we need to give us the reminders of those promises that were made that we need to continue this journey. And as Christina comes back up, there's one last thing that I want to cover in this story, and that is the response of the two sons. You see, we talked about the father's heart, and we talked about the response of the father, right? That the father gave a robe, which was love, mercy, grace, and favor. We talked about the ring and how it was covenant and how it was a memorial and how it was identity and authority. And then we talked about the shoes. See, that was the response of the Father. That's the heart of the Father for you and I this morning. 
But what's our response? See, I believe that our response can be found in one of the sons. And before we get to their response, who do the sons represent in this story? I mean, yes, they represent you and I. But Jesus had a very particular audience that he was speaking to when he was sharing this story. And in Luke 15, 1 through 2, it tells us what that audience was made of. It says, tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. You see, we've got some former tax collectors and notorious sinners that are sitting in these seats right now. Trust me, if you heard some of the stories that some of these people have lived through, you'd be like, uh, come again? Excuse me? Like you did what? You've been where? You see, Jesus was talking to tax collectors and notorious sinners because they often came to listen to Jesus teach. Now, this is, this is, this is kind of interesting to me, the fact that they often came to hear him teach. Yes, I think they were captivated by what he said, but I think they were more captivated by his love and compassion that they saw in him. And then the Pharisees looked at it and goes, mm, mm. that's all they did. Mm. Mm. So the younger son, the younger son responded like a son. He came to his senses. Here's the father's voice. He comes back in humility. He responds like a son. What does that mean, responds like a son? Even though he went with this whole speech about, like, I'll just be a slave in your house, the fact that he would even come back, because at the end of the day, he was unqualified to even be a slave in the house. Do do you realize that? He was unqualified to be a slave in his father's house, but he chose to come anyway. That's what sons and daughters do. They come anyway. You see, there's a lot of times where we tell ourselves that we're unqualified. That we're unqualified to do this or we're unqualified to do that. And a lot of times what we do is we say, oh, it's because I'm not strong in that area. That's not my strength. Well, I hate to break this to you, but Jesus has this thing where he says, I choose to take the weak things. The weak things and show my strength through those. See, because if all you're going to do is operate in your strengths, then you can always say, well, it's me that did it. But when you operate out of your weaknesses, then you've got to say, oh, well, it's definitely not me. It has to be God. 
see, that's how a son operates. A son realizes that, you know what, I got to do whatever he wants me to do, no matter what it looks like, no matter if it's really what I want to do or not, I got to be willing to do it because when we're willing to do what we're unqualified to do, that's what qualifies you. And then the older son. You know what he responded like? He responded like a slave. Now, I'm going to read this out of the message translation because I like what it says in a certain part. So it says this, All this time his older son was out in the field. And when the day's work was done, he came in. As he approached the house, he heard the music and dancing, calling over one of the house boys, he asked what was going on, and he told him, your brother came home. Your father has ordered a feast, barbecued beef. Man, that sounds good. Because he has him home safe and sound. Now the older brother stalked off in an angry sulk and refused to join in. Think about how sad this picture is about to become. His father came out and tried to talk to him. But he would not listen. This is why I use the message translation because it's the only one that says it this way because it's exactly what he did. He, he would not listen. It didn't say he did not listen. It said he would not listen. The son said, look at how many years I've stayed here serving you. See, this is a mindset of a slave. Never giving you one moment of grief, but you have, you, but, but have you ever thrown a party for me and my friends? Then this son of yours who's thrown away your money shows up. I just have a hard time saying that right now. But it's okay. That's just raw truth right there. And you go all out with a feast. His father said, son, you don't understand. You're with me all the time. And everything that is mine is yours. But this is a wonderful time and we had to celebrate. This brother of yours was dead and he's alive. He was lost and he's found. He says, but he would not listen. He would not listen. This is what a Pharisee mindset does to you. It causes you to cut your ears off and you don't listen to God. You're not open to hearing Him speak to you that maybe what's happening is the right thing. You're not open to hearing Him speak and tell you you need to do this instead of that. You don't want to listen. You know what Pharisees also do? They play the victim card. This is what a Pharisee mindset does. They play the victim card. Oh, man, what do you, I mean, I'm over here doing all this work. I'm doing it all. I Look at me, look at me, look at me. But then this son of yours shows up who squandered all your stuff, and he, he, he basically told you he wished you were dead, and now you're treating him like, like, like I ought to be treated. See, 
there's another thing that says, he, he says, son, you don't understand. You're with me all the time. And everything that is mine is yours. Everything that is mine is yours. But you see, here's the problem with a Pharisee mindset. And having the mindset of a slave in the kingdom is this, is that you get too busy doing what you think the Father wants you to do instead of what really He wants you to do. We get too busy working doing what we think He wants us to do instead of being in His presence. Look, you can't earn anything in the kingdom of God. So many times we have this thing backwards. We want to do the works before we have faith. And it says we've got to have faith to do the works. It's got to go hand in hand. So many times we want to do works until faith comes. Because we're trying to earn a certain approval. We want certain people to look at it. We're not even doing it for Him. We're doing it so the crowd can see it. The Pharisees, they didn't care about the heart of the Father. They cared about what people saw. of anybody that should have known that Jesus was who Jesus was, was the Pharisees. Good night. They studied the book of the law for like ever. They memorized it for crying out loud. And everything in scripture points to Jesus. And so when they see him, they don't want to accept him because that's not the idea that they had about him. Bill Johnson said this in his book, Hosting the Presence. He said, it's often those who have been overexposed to the things of God that actually build a resistance to Him. I'm going to say that one again. It's often those who have been overexposed to the things of God that actually build a resistance to Him. Because overexposure often happens when a person hears much teaching from the Word, but does not come to a place of total surrender. And that was the issue of the Pharisees. He goes on to say, so much of what we do is done out of a ministry principle instead of out of the presence. When we reduce the joy of knowing God to the principles that bring breakthrough, we cheapen the journey. Those who desire principles above presence seeks a kingdom without a king. Look, I'm all for principle. I'm all for discipline. He also says that Christianity should not be known by its discipline, but by its passion. You know, think about it. All we want to do is tell people what they're doing wrong. All we want to do is tell people what they need to do to be right. I'm sorry, but like people have had that their entire life. They don't want that to be the uh, gate that they walk through. They're looking for something that's totally different, something that's willing to give their life for. You know what that is? It's a father that sees them coming and is not concerned about their past in that moment. All he's concerned about is the present and in the future. 
day that we come to be more consumed with principle than presence is the day that we begin to miss it. Because when we make it more about principle than presence, then we make it more about us being able to save than the presence being able to save. We make it more about what we can do, what we can say to bring somebody out of their bondage, out of their addiction, instead of allowing the presence to do the work. Now, you don't need to leave here thinking that I'm not about principle and that I'm not about discipline because I am. But too many times what we do is we try to teach people disciplines before they even have had an encounter with the passion. responding? Are we responding as a slave or a son? Are we responding as a slave or a son?